If you're a professional, one of the things I would say is uh, try to go after your passion. If you give your work a bigger meaning than just making money, you'll go beyond the nine to five or nine to six schedule. You'll give it a lot more than just thinking about it as work. Microsoft Research works at the cutting edge, but how much do we know about the people behind the science and technology that we create? This is What's Your Story, and I'm Johannes Gerke, Lab Director of Microsoft Research Redmond. I am excited by the people I work with, and I'm curious about how they became the talented and passionate people they are today. So I sat down with some of them. Now, I'm sharing their stories with you. In this podcast series, you'll hear from them about how they grew up the critical choices that shape their lives, and their advice to others looking to carve a similar path. In this episode, I'm talking with Ranveer Chandra. Ranveer is the Managing Director of Research for Industry and Head of Networking Research in Redmond, and he's been with the company for almost 20 years. His work in systems and networking is helping to bring more internet connectivity to more people and is yielding tools designed to help farmers increase food production more affordably and sustainably. Here's my conversation with Ranveer, beginning with his childhood in India and his experience applying to and studying at one of the prestigious Indian Institutes of Technology. So I grew up in India. I grew up in a city called Jamshedpur in India. It's a steel city. It's the only city in India without a mayor. So the Tata. What does steel city mean? Steel. It's the first steel oh, plant in India. Okay. Uh -huh. and a lot of the steel comes from there. The Tatas. Uh, which are the big industrialists in India, they run the city. So it's we. I grew up with 24-hour uh, water, 24-hour electricity, trees on both sides. It looks like a mini Seattle or a mini Palo Alto in India. It's a beautiful city. And I did my schooling there in uh, in uh, in one of the schools in that city called Jamshedpur. I did my undergrad in uh, IITs, one of the IITs in India. And then I came to the U.S. Uh, uh, to start to do my PhD at Cornell. So my childhood, we are three brothers and a sister. Uh, all three brothers went to, all four of us studied engineering. Uh, the three brothers all went to IITs, different IITs, and we studied hard, played hard. Uh, we did spend a lot of time in villages though. Every summer and winter vacation, we would go to my grandparents' place, which was in another state in India called Bihar, uh, which is one of the poorest states, but my grandparents, they were farmers, and they had a lot of farmlands in those villages. So I did spend summer and winter vacations in those villages. And how did you end up to, to study engineering? How did you decide on that? Yeah, so uh, in India, as it happens, these IITs are very competitive exams. Yeah. So in uh, around during our time, uh, like close to half a million people gave the test, students gave the test, and the top 2,000 got into IIT. There was a test of physics, chemistry, and math. Those were the only three subjects. And among those, uh, the, the top few would try typically be computer science. So it was more, I, I enjoyed math. That was my, that was what I really enjoyed. And then uh, because I got selected into the IITs, that was of course a kind of a dream for many people to go study there. The education level there is really high, really good. And that is how I ended up in IIT. It was kind of unplanned. It wasn't, you know, when I got my, uh, when I got through IIT, 
I wanted to go to another IIT because the one I went to, Kharagpur, it was close to home. But I wanted to go to Bombay because it's a big city, Mumbai. It's a big city. Bollywood runs out of right. Bombay. I thought I could get into Bollywood. Not, not really. <laughs> but, but I did go to Kharagpur, which is closest to, this is the one where um, it has, it's the oldest IIT. And it was very close to home. So I ended up going there and studying computer science. And, and why computer science? Yeah, so uh, computer science, because it was, it had a lot of math. So once I got, the way I got exposed to computers was I was um, in high school. I, I studied the theory before I got to touch a computer. There was one computer in school. Oh, one uh, computer? In the one world. computer and everyone uh -huh. had to go there and see what a computer is. But we did get, uh, we had books to teach you everything about what binary is, how computers were invented. That was not the time I enjoyed reading about computers. So you did like algorithms on like on like sheets of paper. Yeah. <laughs> so we, yeah. So you draw the flowcharts. Right. I enjoyed some of the flowcharts. Yeah. I remember some of the flowcharts. Like how do you have the greatest common factor and things uh -huh. like that. I enjoyed doing those algorithms and that there was that similarity with math. You need to have a good math background to to enjoy those things in computers. So I did a lot of programming on pen and paper, and someone would correct it. And then we got to start uh, learning basic was the first language that I learned. I really liked uh, coding. Uh, what, what kind of computer was it actually? So this was, uh, you know, these these uh, these dumb computers with one mainframe behind. So this okay. was one of the Sun computers back then. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh -huh. we had uh, just these dumb terminals through which uh -huh. you would get access to these. And that was basic, not, not Pascal or anything? Else no, it started uh -huh. with basic. Yeah, basic and then Fortran was the next uh -huh. one, then C. So those are the languages that I learned. And Computers, because I just enjoyed, I would have picked either math or computers. Those were my two things. And computers was just fun. It was more, and you, that was just the time, you know, when you would reserve some time to play a computer game, yep. Pac-Man and things like right. that. So uh, those things were fun back then. This was right. uh, late 80s, early 90s. And then, I mean, what I've heard is that to get into the IITs is super competitive. So did you then study a lot or you played a lot or what was the... <laughs> oh, that's a funny story. So, you know, when I went into IIT, I was... Uh, the interesting thing is once you go there, everyone who comes there is all over, from all over India. These are the people who are top of their class. So everyone else is as good as you. Right? So you, you then end up studying very hard because that's the culture. Everyone is coming in there. And uh, in the first semester at uh, at IIT, I was number one in the IIT, all across IIT. And then it was like, whoa, that was that was easy. I didn't have to put in a lot of effort. My elder brother was uh, there too. He was in the last year, and uh, he was he was more the fun kind. I was more of the you know the studious kind. He came and told me, don't do thing A, thing B, thing. Don't get into alcohol or or party and all of that stuff. I ended up doing all of that. Don't run for elections. I ran for elections and all that stuff. Oh, really? Where did you run for elections? No, so within, within, the within the institutes, I was uh, the secretary of uh, sports, volleyball, and all of that stuff. So I did a, a lot of fun as well. So in the end, I was like number three graduating. But I did have a lot of fun too. I did a lot of social cultural things. I was in the volleyball team and things like that at IIT. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and coming once more back, I mean, so to get into the IIT, I mean, for, for me as a German, this is so you know, unusual because we don't have these centralized entrance exam except for medicine. Yeah. But um, I, I heard the test is, is really, really hard. And you actually, in the, your last year of high school, you don't really study for high school anymore. You just study for that test. How, how, how is that actually? Yeah. And now it has become even more competitive. During our time, it was, there were fewer seats. There were like 2,000 people from all across. There were five uh, IITs, six IITs back then. And yeah, studying uh, towards the end. So you start studying just physics, chemistry, math. 
back during our time we didn't have as much tuitions and stuff i didn't have many anyone like the last 6 months i had something but now people go to these uh, these other uh, towns which are meant for coaching people for iits and they have they these different sections they go away from their parents they live in a hostel and all they are preparing for is the iits we don't have that i didn't have that during our time but now it has become so much even more competitive more students take it and it's like a centralized exam for oh, for wow. studying right. but it does you know in the end the experience was worth it if you ask me hey was all this studying worth it i think getting into iits of course the professors are good but the students are exceptional the kind of people you're interacting with that ambience and now when i look at my classmates everyone's doing well and you you find people doing different things so not not everyone is in is in tech they go to different things and they excel in that field because of the kind of people that they select into these iits so i think in the end it was stressful but it was worth That's it it's a great opportunity yeah i mean and and then you made sort of the decision not only after the iits to to stay in india and to take probably a very good job yeah but to come to the us you know and learn even more so what what drove you to that decision yeah that was kind of like the way i studied computer science it was not at least i had a passion for computer science i didn't want to do a phd by the way when i was coming here so you would ask why so you know, when was when i was graduating i got the highest paying job that year among all the undergrads and that was a big deal that was back then synopsis one of the eda company the cad companies right the bnsi companies so i would have taken that but as it happens usually the people who are at the top of the class they would apply outside and they would come here to study and that was the reason i had applied but then the the thing i really wanted to do in my career was to be in business i wasn't really looking to be an academic back then i was like you know i'll go study an mba and you just wanted to get a phd instead yeah no so i was like you know i'll apply to phd programs and they give a masters anyways and after that i'll go do an mba i wanted to be the business guy so that was the reason i applied and but the reason the people the person who had convinced me to come here was a professor at cornell i had other top schools but there was a professor at cornell who was a networking guru at that time i won't name him he's still a very good friend of mine so he convinced me to come there i was a fan of his work um, uh, and i decided to come to cornell for him i said no to other schools the and then i land here uh, this was 1999 i send a message as soon as i get to ethica mm-hmm. saying uh, hey i'm here i would love to meet you and he says well you know i'm really sorry but i left the left cornell to do a startup and then i was a bit i was very upset the, for for a few months i didn't know what what am i doing here i gave everything up i had other colleges where i could have gone mm-hmm. but over here i came to study computer science and the person i came here for is no longer here it was disappointing but then i was lucky that uh, professor ken berman adopted me he was like hey you have a fellowship you do what you want i'm not going to interfere you just do what you want and that's what convinced me to do a phd that in the sense the first few months were disappointing but then once i got the freedom i really i was like i was getting paid some money for just learning and that bit really got me very excited the fact that i had all the independence to pick what i want to work on the things that i want and that's what convinced me that i don't want to do an mba i want to i can do what i would do with an mba after doing a phd so that's what got me to do a phd at cornell it's it's super interesting because i mean if you hear that story for many people it would be kind of frightening right you you come there well you have this person who you wanted to work with and maybe he there was sort of a plan set up or so and now i mean you have to switch advisors okay that's one thing but the second thing is a phd sounds so frightening to many people because it's like a step into the unknown right so your phd by definition 
you don't know whether you're going to get there, right? Because yeah. it's research and research sometimes leads you into the wrong path. Right. And sometimes you don't get the result that you want. So how do, how do you deal personally with that uncertainty? For me, it is more, I, I like the unstructured part of it. I like the fact that I could take it in many directions and grow it. And I want that, that level of flexibility. And the more I realized, uh, I think problem picking becomes important and can help me a bit with it. So initially, I told him I want to do wireless. This was back in 1999. It's six months into a course. I like I want to write a paper. This is what we want to do on reliable multicast, but for wireless systems. That time, wireless was very new. People didn't have cell phones um, and such. So And he said, go for it. It was worth it. And then I started exploring it with another grad student. We wrote a paper on it. And that was a good learning experience, which I really enjoyed. The fact that I'm venturing into the unknown. And uh, Ken was explicit. He was like, I'm not the expert in wireless. You have to learn it yourself. We did it ourselves. We wrote the paper. It got accepted. And all that was really helped me, gave me the confidence that you, it is possible to explore and do new things. And that's what got me excited. And that's what kept me into the space of networking as well. It's all about wireless and, um, and getting people more connected at low cost. How do you get everyone connected to the internet? And that's a space, I think there is a passion within me around that as well. And the fact that during my PhD, I got the opportunity to go explore, just try everything. And, uh, and we just made, kept making the right bets as well with respect to papers and what get, got accepted. I did, I did an internship at Microsoft Research as well during my PhD. This was three years into my PhD. I came here a few times and that helped me as well. That helped me further. I, I worked with Victor Bal, who was my uh, intern manager, but he was my mentor. And that helped me further go towards my career goals. Of and, and Victor is now a technical fellow in Azure, yes. where he's the yeah. CTO of our Azure for Operators efforts. That's right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, maybe, maybe one thought about networking, right? So networking seems to me like this field, which is pretty hard because Without the hardware, networking doesn't work. But without the right kind of network protocols and software, it doesn't work. So you don't only can you cannot do only do one thing, right? You cannot do only just the one layer. the software, and you also have to do the hardware, and they have to sort of co-evolve. How does this work in networking research? Explain that a little bit to our audience. How does networking research actually make progress if both of these have to sort of work in lockstep? That's a great point, uh, Johannes. And that is one of the things with networking. Right when I was an undergrad, I started getting excited by this layer diagram of networking, the seven-layer diagram, the seven-layer OSI stack. That we oh, yeah, I never understood that completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all the way from the physical layer. Right. So if you think of the physical layer is one hop, yeah. Mac layer. So networking is all about how do you send bits across two computers anywhere right. in the world. Yeah. And at the lowest layer, it's about how do you send the bits across. The layer right. above it makes it reliable over one hop. That's the medium access layer. Right. The layer above that ensures that you can communicate not just over one hop, but anywhere on the internet using IP. Right. The level above that with TCP, you make sure that end-to-end -end communication is more reliable. Right. So every step, every layer that you go above helps, making sh helps to make sure that your network is better. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the once you start layering things, it makes it harder to interoperate. It makes things inefficient because you're adding headers per layer, which makes it, well, you're consuming bandwidth, you're, you're introducing extra latency. But that's an opportunity. At the very least, what this layer diagram has done is that it has ensured innovation across different layers. As long as they're good enough APIs 
for each layer to communicate with the next layer. So that is the key part of networking research, where over the years it has kept evolving. Every layer has changed. The hardware, we've seen Ethernet go from bits per second to kilobits to megabits, gigabits. Now it's hundreds of gigabits. We'll soon hit terabits as well, which people are talking about with 6G. To every layer, when we think of the Mac layer, the TCP layer, all of those have been evolving. And that has led to applications. A lot of times, a lot of people just worry about the applications. This is my media application. Can I watch things on Netflix? Well, underlying that is all the bandwidth that the network provides. Got it. So, so one way to think about this is that as long as I make my hardware have the same APIs, I can even go, I can sort of significantly evolve my hardware and all the other parts of the network stack will, exactly. will, will work. Exactly. I see. So you could be innovating on the radio, you make that Got radio it. faster, but as long as you keep the APIs the same, the TCP layer would work as is with the layers Got in it. the bottom. So, so I hear this magic word 6G from you a lot these days. Can you just explain a little bit what, what is 6G all about and why is it interesting? Yeah, so every like, with the network, we've seen these standards evolve over time. Every 10 years, we see from 2G to 3G to 4G, now Why 5G. 10 years? Why 10 years? 10 years is usually the time it takes to come up with a new innovation, drive the standard, drive alignment across different stakeholders to see this is what the next standard should be. Because then once you finalize the standard is when you'll have all the other vendors, like people who build the hardware to base stations, to cell phones, to modems, everyone can then align and build something. That is, you know, you have your Qualcomm model talk, modem talking with, say, an Ericsson hardware with the AT&T carrier, which is running on Azure operate. Cloud. That's why yeah. we have the standards. Yeah, so that's why we have the standards, which evolved in a 10-year time frame. Mm -hmm. With 6G, we are looking at uh, 10x more bandwidth, uh, your throughputs will go much higher, and uh, one-tenth the latency. Can you get to sub-millisecond latency? And the kind of scenarios that we are thinking of are, uh, think of, uh, we can think of completing the feedback loop, like robotics and so on, where you're getting the information, you need to send all this to the cloud because this is huge amounts of information, you need to act on it using AI, and you need to send the feedback so that your robot can perform in time. This could be something in a racetrack, something in uh, in the middle of a, uh, on the roads, or it could be in the middle of a farm. Mm -hmm. So this is what the vision is. And along with that, the other vision that we have with 6G is to bring internet all over the world. That is right now still around 40% of the population in the world, that's close to 3 billion people in the world, doesn't have internet access. They just cannot, they, they, they just don't have access to the internet. And, and why does 6G help with that? 6G should make connectivity more affordable. And so 6G is also cheaper, even though it's faster and, it will and lower so latency. That's, well, that's, that's that seems one of the contradictory. Why, why is that the case? No, so I think it will be high speed and low latency in areas where it is needed. Right. But the other feature it should bring in is affordable connectivity in regions that are not connected. And these are in a lot of it is in the emerging markets are where the people are not connected. And it is not just people. Now we're also talking of people and things. Uh, because, you know, if you think of the entire world's surface, close to 80% of the world's surface, which includes ocean and land, doesn't have terrestrial internet. Mm -hmm. So how do you bring, bring internet connectivity throughout the world? That's one of the challenges that people are looking at with 6G, along with some of the other things around sustainability, security, trust. These are all issues as well. But at an underlying layer, the fundamental thing we want is high speed, lower latency, and connectivity, affordable connectivity everywhere. We can't be leaving 3 billion people in the world behind with no internet when it is so central to the way we are. It, it defines everything we do. And yet there are so many people in the world who don't have internet access. You mentioned one word, uh, one word farm, and we'll get to that in a, in a second. I just wanted to 
ask one more question because it just sounds a little bit like magic to me that you know you get lower latency, higher bandwidth, and lower cost. Yeah. Why don't I get this with 5G if I just push the hardware along? What, what so is this is where the research would come in. And I think it won't be this. So when you think of a standard, we think of different components of the standard. One part of the standard is the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Which part of the spectrum do you operate on? Right. That could define the throughputs that you get. Now, the high speed usually comes with a limited range as well. Like, you know, like one of the technologies that people are talking about, we are investigating here at Microsoft Research as well as terahertz networks. Mm -hmm. This is a part of the spectrum where you get huge amounts of bandwidth. It's still following Shannon's law, but it is just in that part of the spectrum that until now people said couldn't be used for communication. But what we are so showing is that, well, you could. You could use it for communication in that part of the spectrum. Once you get that bandwidth, it also helps us reduce latency by a significant amount. So that's one thing people are looking at. Along with that, another technology people are looking at to overcome this problem of short range, like 100 meters, to go beyond that is smart surfaces. So one of the things we are building is rather than just have these base stations, what do we, if we have smart surfaces which are programmable and can then make sure that wherever people are, wherever things are, you can provide connectivity there by, by channeling the signals in that particular region. Along with that, people are also looking at, for affordability, people are looking at different for other forms of coming. Like previously, we've looked at other parts of the spectrum, like lower terahertz is going further closer to light, uh, that part of the spectrum. The other part of the spectrum is lower in the TV spectrum, for example, or radio spectrum. Once you go lower in the spectrum, your connectivity can just, just go really long distances. So one of the innovations that uh, we had done a lot at Microsoft Research was on using TV spectrum to send and receive information. The benefit is this spectrum is not being used in many places. And using that, you can provide very low cost point to multi-point connectivity in different regions. Makes so, sense. Yeah, and so and that, 6G encompasses all of those? 6G would incur. Right now, it's still being defined. It's still early. Okay. But as far as research goes, we are working with the community on all these aspects. The other aspect about 6G is AI-driven networks. So can you make your networks much more intelligent? Right now, you define these networks in standards and the standards written, and that's what is implemented. But you could adapt parts of it based on what's happening around you. And you can use the spectrum better. You can use it to make sure that you're getting much more efficiencies in your in your system. You can prioritize things better. So that's again one of the other themes that uh, that we are investing in, and a few of the other other research labs are investing in as well. Super interesting. And I mean, you mentioned this word farm before. You're of course known for farm vibes, and maybe um, just explain very briefly what farm vibes is. Yeah. And then also explain, you know, you started out here doing this in Microsoft Research, but then you actually went to a product group, right? What made you, you know, what made you take that decision? And, you know, you're actually now finally here in Microsoft Research again. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, yeah. you know, that journey. Yeah, so I'll start with why did I even pick agriculture, right? So as I said, I did spend a lot of time in my grandparents' farms in Bihar. This was in, what in were North they India. So they used to farm wheat, sugarcane, okay. rice, mm -hmm. and uh, they had farms there. And back then I did not like anything to do with agriculture. So I used to go there with my brothers and sisters. And, you know, I, I, I did do a, like I played kabaddi there. I learned how to ride a bicycle with the what, people what is there. Kabaddi? What's... Kabaddi is like a, it's a funner form of rugby, not, not even, you know, it's, it's, uh, there are two teams and you essentially have to bring the other team down. So, uh, and uh, it, it's, you play it in the sand, you get really dirty playing it. And growing up in, in those villages, it was fun. But spending time in those villages, I, I didn't really look forward to them. The reason was that, you know, the rest of the year you are in the city, 
which is maintained by the Tatas, which has water, electricity, clean roads, everything. And then the rest of the three, four months, I was in this village, which did not have electricity. They didn't have toilets. If you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go out in the fields in the middle of the night in the winter. It wasn't what you'd look out, look forward to. But that's how, that's one of the things that I grew up with. But one of the things that really stuck with me was the poverty that exists in these villages. Like one of the times my mom, she did some prayers, she had an offering and she left it outside and there were a group of kids. They didn't have, they hadn't had anything to eat during the day. They were just there to grab something to eat. And that has been something that um, has really, it's been in, in my mind. It's during my undergrad and even over here, one of the, pro the one of the things I always want with any project I'm working on is this bigger mission. Things that can impact the people I grew up with. Uh, and uh, be it with TV white spaces for providing internet connectivity to what I saw was very primitive forms of agriculture. These, these farmers, they would do hand-based seeding. Over here, you use tractors that they would take, go with the hand and put the seeds. They would do uh, use bullock-driven tractors. Like to till, they would just go with a bullock, they'll put this hitch on it and then go till the fields. And though this, it's very primitive. So what we, what we want to do is to enable data-driven agriculture. And the bigger goal here is to so help address the world's food problem. The world needs 50% more food compared to today's levels. And in order to grow that 50% more food, we need to get there, not just food, we need to grow good food, nutritious food, and we need to get there without harming the planet. The soils are not getting any richer, the water levels are receding. So that's the big pitch of what we want to do with Palm Beats. Our goal is one of the most promising approaches to get there is that what we call data-driven agriculture. That is, can, you, can farmers use data and AI to remove guesswork as part of their farming operations? You know, the farmers that we work with, uh, like even when I was doing networking here, I would actually go and volunteer in farms here and I'd cold call various farmers. What I realized is that these farmers... And like here in, in Washington State, right? In Washington mm -hmm. State. In mm -hmm. fact, there's a Starbucks right here. There was a barista who knew me. She said that, hey, I'm going to Spokane, Eastern Washington this weekend. If she's in Eastern Washington, maybe they farm. So I asked exactly. her, who farms there? She said, my grandfather. I was like, can you connect me to him? So I would just cold call them. I talked to a lot of farmers. And what I realized is that these farmers, they know a lot about their farm. Um, they've been farming there for a long time. Right. Yet a lot of decisions they make is based on guesswork. Right. And that is where all the data-driven farming piece came in. So through Farm Vibes and previously Farm Beats, with Farm Beats, we, we built a data, data platform for agriculture. Then I had moved over to the product side. We shipped it as a product. Uh, we announced partnerships with Lando Lakes. We announced partnerships with where Land O'Lakes, their, their agriculture platform is now running on that. We announced partnerships with Bayer Corporation, with uh, USDA and other organizations as well. Then uh, while I was there, what I realized that is that the engineering team is now on track. They are delivering this product, but that's not enough to help us address the world's food problem. We need to add intelligence on top of what we are building. We need to bring the all the innovations that we are doing in AI for this field. And that was one of the reasons, and of course, working with you and the fact that uh, the networking networking is one of the key components that can help us networking and AI. So that was one of the other reasons why I came back. And with Farm Vibes, that's the problem that we are addressing. With Farm Vibes, it's the, uh, it's the in farm intelligence piece. It's the intelligence that sits, that can light up scenarios, these scenarios that we talk of when we think of data-driven agriculture, sustainable agriculture. The kind of things we want to do is help a farmer take the right decisions for 
what will make them more productive, what will make them reduce their emissions, what will help them sequester more carbon. These are the kind of questions we want to help a farm farmer answer. And some of that is very fundamental research. We've come up with ways to see through the clouds, to do very hyper-local microclimate prediction, to combine different models to make much more accurate predictions to for farmers. And that's that's the kind of thing we're enabling as part of Farm Vibes. Well, and so just curious, I mean, here, here in Washington State, what what is grown on those farms and how how have you helped so far? Yeah, so there are farms here. There's one farm in eastern Washington. We work with this farmer, Andrew Nelson, who's a fifth generation wheat farmer. This is an hour east of Spokane. So if you go to Spokane, you have to drive another hour. It's interesting when you go to Andrew's farm, uh, like a, we are about 15, 20 minutes from his farm and you lose internet cell connectivity. It's completely gone. Yeah. So you're like uh-huh. off the grid. Uh-huh. And then you reach his house and then he set up this TV white space thing. He has some connectivity in his farm. Through satellite or then over TV white space? TV white space and a okay. fiber to his home. So okay. there's a fiber that he's paid to bring fiber to his oh, home wow. and then oh. that lights up the area around his farm using some of the technologies that we have been inventing here. And with Andrew, uh, this is just one use case, but you could replicate it across other farms as well. He uses some of the techniques throughout his farming life cycle, all the way from planning what to farm, to planting, what to plant, where to plant, to in production, like for example, doing chemical application, where do I apply herbicides? Do I need to spray pesticides? Where do I spray it? Rather than spraying it throughout. To harvest, that is when should I harvest? How should I, what route should I take? To post-harvest, monitoring things and deciding when and where to sell certain things to gain, to get more profit. So he uses it throughout his, um, his farming life cycle. And he's seen a lot of benefit. Like Andrew's talked about how in one part of the farm, he could double his yield. Double? I was just going to ask actually how much benefit he got. Double the yield. And in another part of the farm, he's talked about 40% reduction in chemical costs. You know, for a farmer, one of the input costs is chemicals. And using this precision techniques that we built, Andrew's been able to save 40% in, that's that's huge. This is probably also good for the environment. It's good for the environment as well. He's not putting in more chemicals than are needed. So these are real use cases with farmers uh, in, in, in our, in Washington state. We're also working, for example, we announced a partnership in India in Maharashtra. This is one of the centers of excellence that's being put up mm-hmm. for farm wives. So this is, again, they are building AI capability. This is across Oxford University. There's an organization in India called Agriculture Development Trust and Microsoft. And working with, of course, Microsoft India, our sales team there, they've set up the center of excellence in a village wow. called Baramati in India, where they are going to be taking the same techniques we built and adapting it for smallholder farmers in, in, in that region. So really wow. excited about exciting. the value it brings. Yeah. Well, Ranveer, it seems like you, you know, here at Microsoft, you had the amazing opportunity to really have huge impact. You know, you start on research, then deliver the product, now even extending the product to more use cases. Do you have any career advice for our listeners, given where you are and where you're going? Yeah, and as a student, uh, if there are students listening to this, I would say consider going after a PhD. It gives you that exposure, uh, the opportunity to learn, to dig deep, to know a lot about, about the field. If you're a professional, one of the things I would say is uh, try to go after your passion. If you give your work a bigger meaning than just making money, you'll go beyond the nine to five or nine to six schedule to make that happen. Like, you know, Johannes, one funny incident is uh, over here at uh, working at Microsoft. Most people sit in front of the computer. Uh, when I had started working on farm beats, every day I would be driving to this farm. There was another farm about 40 minutes drive from here. Every day, summer or winter, I would be driving there to do the experiments. And I would go there and a few days, especially when it rains, it gets really gloomy. 
and you have to go in boots to a pond that is muddy, half flooded. I'd be like, why am I doing this? I could be sitting there. And then the, the way I would argue to myself is, you know, even if 1% of what I'm doing works, it will help the lives of so many farmers worldwide. And then that just gave me the extra energy to go even more, to, to just give it everything that I have to make that difference. Mm -hmm. So that's something which I tell students as well, give whatever work you do, you're working in AI, you're working in systems, you're working in, uh, in uh, building the next plane or building the next ship, give your work a bigger meaning, you will, you'll enjoy it. It just, uh, you can, you'll give it a lot more than, than just thinking about it as work. And you're right that at Microsoft and uh, we get that opportunity to make that wholesome impact. That is as you did as well. We get to go to the products. If something ships as part of a Microsoft product, it touches the lives of so many people. Like one of the projects I was with was Xbox for the Xbox when I designed that uh, Xbox wireless controller protocol. Now over 100 million people use it. And one of the most common uh, congratulatory messages I get is still around the Xbox. When I'm giving a talk, someone will come and say, my son said thanks to you because you helped make the Xbox successful. So that's one of the opportunities we get, but not just that, we get the opportunity to come do research and think bigger about the problem, mm -hmm. take it to a different level, and then influence the next generation of product. So this is, uh, thank you, I think this is an awesome place to work to realize that mission, that that vision of what we want to achieve in our lives. Yeah, I think, I mean, it speaks so, so much to me because this is something that I was also really excited about, making the transition from a university here to Microsoft as well. Thanks again, Ranveer, for the great conversation. Yeah, thank you, Hans. <laughs>